Did you see the 5K display link that I sent you? I think this is really exciting. That's why I put it first. Yeah, I saw the link to it. I just briefly read through it since I didn't have a lot of time right before we started the show. Mm -hmm. It looks really exciting. I have some questions and a little bit of concerns about it, but I am cautiously optimistic. Progress, progress. It looks like they're using an NVIDIA Quadro K5000 to demo it. That particular graphics card has a 3840 by 2160 at 60 hertz. So I'm guessing the display is not doing like just a single input. And in fact, I think it might be in the specs. It even says that it uses two display ports in order to achieve the 5K resolution. But I'll take it. <laughs> yeah. So how does that work on a Mac? I think that... Apple may have gone back and retroactively changed their drivers to allow stitching for the 4K, but I don't know for sure. I guess that's something for a follow-up. But I'm guessing that with the 5K, they would do something similar where they either they have to adjust the drivers or it won't work. I would hate to buy a monitor like that and plop down the $2,500 only to have it not work. That would suck. Though with the Dell, they have two different options. They support a 4K resolution with the standard DisplayPort, a single one. And, or they do the two ports to do the 5K. So you, yeah. if you, even if you can't use the 5K, at least you can still use the 4K. Oh boy. <laughs> though, though I, I wouldn't want to buy it for the 4K resolution either. So for my desk setup, I have two monitors. I have a 30 inch Dell and then I have a 24 inch Dell sitting next to it. If I got this monitor, I would have the uh, 5K monitor be my primary one, and then mm -hmm. I would move my 30-inch monitor over to the side to be my secondary display. The problem I run into is on the new Retina MacBook Pros, there's three ports on it. There's two display ports, and then there's one HDMI on the other side. Right. So if I have the two display ports used for the 27-inch 5K monitor, I can only use the HDMI for my 30-inch um, monitor. Mm -hmm. Now, the issue I run into is I don't know what the capability of that would be. I was looking on um, the Retina MacBook Pro specs, and it looks like I can do 4K out of the HDMI at 30 hertz. The, the 30 hertz thing is the limitation, I believe, for the HDMI. Yeah, which on my 30-inch, I'm not running 4K. Mm -hmm. But I'm wondering what would be the limitation on something that's 2560 by 1600. I think that you have to go all the way down to 1080p before you get back to 60 hertz. I could be wrong on that, though. Well, I mean, it's a secondary monitor, so I'm not really doing that much with it. So I guess it's something I can live with. Some people were talking about how a long time ago they already got the giant 4K monitors that are supposed to use as TVs for de code development and just doing that at 30 hertz. That might be okay for them, but I would just get incredibly driven nuts by when I'm moving the mouse around and watching it jump. So is it just that for you, or is it also things like gaming that you're concerned about? Less gaming, since... Most of the games that I would be running wouldn't run very fast at a 4K resolution, so I'd have to downscale it anyway, and if I'm doing that, it would then go up to 60 hertz. Speaking of refresh rates, do you remember on the old CRTs how um, there used to be much higher refresh rates? Yeah, uh, it would be nice if we could get back there someday. And, and uh, the CRTs have a lot of things that are much better about them. They don't have problems in the dark with black levels. They're, they have faster refresh rates. They don't have gray-to-gray -gray issues. All sorts of fun things that CRTs are better at. They're just gigantic. That's, that's the major, major problem with them. 
I'm wondering how OLED will help when it comes to this sort of stuff. That's where my hopes have been for like the last 10 years. And we're finally, finally getting to the point where there's some decent resolution OLED TVs that are available. They're still kind of expensive, but they're getting into sort of the more consumery levels. So I'm excited about that. I've seen OLED TVs, but I haven't really seen anything on the OLED monitor front. I think we'll probably get there too. The TVs are easier because you don't have to... Well, maybe they're not easier. I'm guessing it's resolution. Like a lot of those OLED TVs are just 1080p over a large area. A lot of them are, but they have the 4K ones as well. The thing is, like, it, it I don't think it's like a pixel density thing because there's a lot of phones that use OLED and have high pixel densities. So I'm not exactly sure what the major issue is for having a monitor like that. Uh, it seems like if it works fine with a TV, you shouldn't have too much of a problem making it work with a monitor. Maybe it's just the constraints that OLED has a really nice bright picture where that's good for doing things like watching movies. Well, it's kind of like the whole push for 4K within TVs. I mean, it's not really all that necessary compared to the push for 4K on monitors. Yes, and yet it's happening on TVs first, probably because it's more of a consumer item. The 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 other exciting thing about having the the 5K with Dell is since Apple often uses a lot of the same panels as Dell does, it sort of hints that there might be a 5K iMac coming soon. And I was considering getting an iMac for my son and hopefully hopefully they will announce 5K iMac soon and I can get one. I'm hoping for a 5K cinema display. One of those would also be nice. Yeah, although like we said before, it's entirely possible that uh, the display will only be available in an iMac, which would be unfortunate. Yeah, I think the most exciting thing about this is before we didn't really have a good idea of when we would get these displays, but now it, it sort of indicates that we should be getting them soon. Fingers crossed. And that follow-up was from our first episode. Please don't listen to it. We should go through and just re-record the first episode. <laughs> that would be great. Okay, next bit of follow-up. I looked up the latency for the Xbox One pass-through, and it appears that people measured it to about 150 milliseconds. So probably not quite what you want for playing a game, but perfectly fine for hooking up your TiVo. Yeah, I remember you saying that I could hook my 360 into an Xbox One. That's a terrible idea, Richard. Sorry. Just terrible. <laughs> you can still hook up your TiVo. Save a port. This is your uh, secret conspiracy to have me be worse at Geometry Wars. <laughs> yes, exactly. I need to beat your score. Uh, for the original, especially. Uh, though my Xbox 360 isn't hooked up anymore, so I'm not getting any better at it. On to the next follow-up. Hyperlapse. I looked at the Instagram tech article on Hyperlapse, the, what they released about how they did it, and it looks like, one, yes, they only mentioned the gyroscope. Two, for the zoom, they do an adaptive number of pixels for the zoom. So if your camera is really shaky, they'll zoom in a lot, and if it's not very shaky, they'll not zoom in as much. It's not set for the entire run either, so it'll uh, dynamically adjust as you go along. I also looked at the Microsoft Hyperlapse paper and looked at the render time, and it is very long. 
The video that they had that was 13 minutes and 11 seconds, from what their paper said, it looked like that had about 40 hours of render time. That's a little bit deceiving because they did a lot of it in parallel. Most of that time was in the source selection. That's where they pick the data to go into the individual frame that they're building for that. And if you don't include that, then the total time is about 3.5 hours because the source selection, I guess, took about a minute per frame and then they put that all on a cluster to do all the frames in parallel. So I take it the source selection, like you said, could be massively paralyzed? The source selection is independent of anything else because after they build the scene and they need to pick assets for what's in the scene, you already know what direction the camera is looking. You already have all the data available. You just need to pick what data goes where. And so they can have all several thousand frames of the movie can just be spawned off into a cluster. And you, you could even do probably something... My guess is that you could probably even put this on a bunch of GPUs or something and get some speed up there, though that's not something that they had tried. Uh, they didn't actually try any sort of optimization at all. Do you think there will ever be any kind of product based off of this? I don't know. Microsoft has this tendency to do some really cool research and then never make a product out of it. Another One of the more famous cases there was the little notebook thing that they had designed that was sort of their idea of a tablet slash notebook kind of thing. And it had a really pretty design, but nobody ever actually did anything with it. The people that worked on that ended up quitting Microsoft and making a version of it for the iPad. I -hmm. guess they're kind of upset that their ideas didn't get used. Understandably so. Microsoft Research sounds like a really cool place to work as long as you don't care about having your stuff becoming a product. Though supposedly a lot of stuff that gets developed at Apple also never sees the light of day. But it's not because they're doing research. It's just because they throw away so many product ideas. I was looking at the webpage for a designer who used to work at Apple. And he has like this whole section of, why did you leave Apple? And, well, basically, I can't talk about why I <laughs> about the, the stuff that I did at Apple. And that's why I left at Apple, because there's all this stuff I worked on. That I that never ever saw the light of day, and I can't even talk to anyone about it. Is there a specific amount of time that they're bound by agreement to not be able to talk? I don't know how long those agreements are legally allowed to be. My guess is as long as it that is. <laughs> I'm waiting for Forstall to come out of the woodwork. That would be an amazing interview. He might be writing a book. Who knows? So the next little bit of follow up is computer literacy. Oh, maybe this isn't a little bit. First. We, we got some user feedback. The feedback was from Steve, and he had a couple of things to say. He has a teacher that has a mini computer lab for video production, and he thinks that giving kids admin rights would be paramount to having a ticking time bomb, which I sort of kind of agree with. For the second thing, I'll sort of quote what he said. I think it, what's more interesting is that as things get more complicated... The more the basic components that make up these things are less understood. Take, for example, the modern car engine. Older car engines were relatively simple and did not require many parts to function or fix, thereby making it easier to fix and diagnose, even though at home a mechanic could take it upon themselves to fix. However, modern cars have so many different electronically controlled parts that sometimes it's hard to pinpoint if the mechanical or electronic part is broken. 
Now, there are computers that can be connected to help diagnose the problem, but what's amazing to me is that our modern mechanics have become so reliant on these computers that they do not understand how the basic parts themselves function, or how to go about fixing them instead of replacing them. I think this comment is basically true. When, when, you, when things start getting more complicated, you have to start using abstractions to be able to work with them effectively. You're incapable of understanding the entire system. So you have to defer to this. In this case, the mechanic is deferring to some computer diagnostics. Another example of this would be something as simple as a computer mouse. No single person knows everything involved in making that mouse. You couldn't find anyone with the skills to refine the oil for the plastic, forge the molds, design the circuitry, etc. At some point, you have to not understand something. I feel like so much of non-tech industries are becoming like tech industries, where you're starting to have tier one, tier two, tier three type people mm-hmm. who are able to uh, do troubleshooting on things. In, in addition to having multiple tiers, though, you start getting specialized within those tiers. So you have a guy at a company that's really good at troubleshooting this one tiny area of his product. And you also see it in things like medicine. I mean, the primary example I can think of is how many different types of doctors there are. Neurologist, cardiologist, podiatrist, obstetrician, etc. Right, because people are complicated. So you need to have specialties in order to work effectively. One thing that came up since our last episode is the whole scandal with the celebrities and the the attacks on these celebrities getting the inappropriate pictures of them online. And it sort of makes you think a little bit about users and their services. You have any ideas on that? I was thinking a lot about it due to our conversation last week. I'm a little bit conflicted because I can't help but think how much of this is usage oriented versus how much of this is administration oriented yeah there's there's the usage aspect and then there's the people that are trying to keep your data safe aspect on the user side things are pretty similar to dealing with uh, identity theft steps that you take to prevent identity theft would be pretty applicable online as well when you're trying to deal with identity theft, the higher profile you are, the more precautions that you need to take. And as such, uh, celebrities need to take more precautions than other people. Do you think this is something that should be part and parcel of uh, their managers helping with this sort of thing? It, it, you can't really expect a celebrity to go and share all of the sort of private things that they've done and <laughs> whether where they've put them. So I don't know that their man- their managers might be able to provide advice on this issue, if that's what you're asking. But they obviously wouldn't be able to take care of individual cases. So to get some clarification, there's been a little bit of confusion on what it is that was an exploit. Like, did um, I heard something about the uh, Find Friends service being able to do a brute force attack on common passwords. Yeah, I saw that too, but Apple doesn't seem to think that was what happened. So it's unclear to me if it was. And another thing there is that it seems that it wasn't like one rapid fire problem because a lot of the images are old and even deleted from the iCloud account. So it seems like it's been something that happened a long time ago. And there was mention in the article that you had linked about it being sort of a private ring that got 
blown open by someone being greedy or careless. Mm. The conjecture is that there's a, like a trading ring of these pictures. And so you need to have like new, new pictures to add to their collections in order to even be able to trade with them in the first place. And the conjecture is that someone decided that they were going to post one of those pictures to try and get some money. They, I guess they got greedy or something. And then other people that had low value collections basically decided, well, my stuff is going to be worthless soon anyway. I might as well get some money out of this from the public. Mm. It, I don't think anyone really knows for sure. It's just that we know that some are new and some are old and there are multiple different accounts asking for money. So it, it, it appears to definitely be more than one person involved in all of this. I think one of the things that's changed within society today is the accessibility of stars. Like uh, you have stars that have Twitter accounts, Facebook pages, whatnot. They're accessible in a way that they haven't been before. Do you think that that contributed to them having this data be found out about them? I can't say for sure, but I would not be surprised if that's the case. I mean, part of it comes to how active you are, are online. In the case of these stars, I haven't gone into any particular research on this and I don't follow anybody <laughs> partic I don't follow anybody particularly famous on Twitter, but it would be interesting to see what the Yeah, it would be interesting yeah. to know if their presence online contributed to people being able to say guess their security questions. I think back to the Sarah Palin email hack in two thousand eight. That I mean that that should have been evidence enough that things like security questions are obsolete and dangerous in some cases, and especially when the security questions are used for more password reset and not used for things like additional security. A lot of times when a bank tells you that you need security questions, they're extra questions that they ask you in addition to your password when you log in, and I'm I'm fine with that. What bothers me is when security questions. Easy security questions especially are used in order to reset your password and thus would be able to give you someone else access to your data. See, what I do with my security questions is I put in garble. I use the password generator to generate the answers to the security questions. That's And that's probably a better way to do it. And until technology catches up with where we need it to be to be easy and safe, that's that what you're going to have to do. Now, I don't think that this is necessarily the user's fault for not knowing that they should be doing this because let's be serious here. Like it's a pain in the butt to have to keep track of all these passwords. And, and until people think that future them is, an, is as important as present them with the same problem that people have with procrastinating to do things, this is always going to be a problem. It has to be just as easy or easier to manage passwords in a good way than it, as it is to ma manage them in a horrible way. What do you think a company like Apple can do to help? One of the things that they can do to help, and they've already talked about how they're going to do more in this area, is the pushing the two-factor authentication. Uh, so do you think this means that on a future version of iOS that they uh, prompt for you to set up two-factor, kind of like they do with Touch ID? And they really should, yeah. So with security, there's what you know, there's what you are, and there's what you have. And having at least two of these at all, all the time would help a lot. It doesn't mean that these uh, hacks are going to go away. Of course, they're not going to, but it would help a lot if you could combine at least a couple of these methods. You need to combine it in a way that's as transparent as possible to the user. Mm. One thing that you could start doing is if there were more consensus on 
password requirements from various places. So instead of having to go and check a whole bunch of boxes for your randomly generated password with the various constraints, that it were more uniform but secure. In, in that way, you could do things like you have a password entry field. It's designated as being the standard password type. And maybe even you can click a button and you can generate and grab your password from your password database in this in the same click if you need to. I think iOS and Safari have started doing something like this. If you have Keychain turned on, that it'll do things like suggest a password. Right, but will it suggest a password that meet the exacting requirements of every single place where you can log in, where some of them have a minimum eight characters and some of them have a maximum eight characters and some of them can only have three characters that are the same in a row and et cetera? You know, this would actually be really great for um, an extension to HTML. Like if there were an addition to the password field that would uh, specify the constraints. Having HTML specify password constraints would be an enormous help to password managers. And I think it's something that should come. I'm sure it can't cover everything. Like I know there are some sites that don't let you use common words, Mm -hmm. you know, to try and prevent dictionary attacks. So something like that wouldn't be in an HTML in a browser. Well, it could just say no dictionary. Uh, I mean, what's considered dictionary might be an implementation detail, but you could at least cover a vast majority of the cases. That's true. And there is a spell checker within all browsers now. Right. I think that eventually we want to have users be able to go, this is my trusted device. It will always know all my passwords. Please take care of it for me. The the question is, then you need to authenticate your user on the device. And that can be more tricky, but at least the user only needs to think about it one time instead of 10,000 times. It's a bit more of a concern because what happens if somebody uses a password manager and somebody breaks into the password manager? And what happens if someone breaks into your password manager? You're sort of screwed, right? But it's still better than trying to keep track of it on pieces of paper. True, but I think my concern is if it's on something like iCloud. From there, I mean, you obviously would need encryption, but most of those have encryption anyway. Yeah, but I can see some typical computer user using the exact same password. For their for their database and their iCloud account? Exactly. It's a hard problem, and that's probably why we don't have a solution yet. <laughs> yeah. I still say that just not being good with passwords does not mean that you are not a computer user. It's something that everyone should know, but that almost everyone makes mistakes with anyway. And that says more about the field than does the person. Either that or at some point there's going to be a credible replacement for passwords. That's part of what I was trying to get at with having a a trusted device. And then you need to be, the, the device needs to authenticate you in some sort of secure way. And then the device could be used to unlock everything else. I think Apple's taking a stab at this. I've heard a lot of rumors about the payment processing that they're going to be announcing. Relating to the celebrities and whether or not they should be considered responsible for this and their their usage of computers resulting in the, in the problems, you can sort of look at uploading your data to a service a bit like putting your journal in a lockbox in a ba- at a bank. If you don't want other people to know about the super horrible things that you said in your journal, you sort of have the following choices. One... Make sure that other people cannot effectively impersonate you so they can't get at you in the bank. Or don't write anything you don't want other people to see in your journal. Now, it is both 
the bank's responsibility to keep your vault safe and your responsibility to make the getting the credentials difficult. So if you have a key to the vault and that's how they authenticate you and you make a whole bunch of copies of your key, someone is probably going to be able to get in at some point. I think we're still grappling with technology and what the equivalent is in real life. Like, I don't think people think of it in the same kind of way, like giving out their key to a bank box. Mm -hmm. And I think it's just a matter of time and a matter of more attacks and, you know, younger people getting more familiar with this sort of thing. Or it's a matter of some new technology coming along that helps prevent this sort of thing. The the media isn't helping here either, actually. Uh, did Did you see what CNN suggested? No, I really try not to watch CNN. Oh, I didn't see it. I just saw someone forward a tweet about it. But CNN mentioned something along the lines of, don't use the password password. Try changing one of the S's to a dollar sign. <laughs> That's as bad as that Fox article on Anonymous from way back in the day. So the the media wasn't doing anyone any favors there and... Five years from now, the most common password is no longer password, but password with dollar signs instead of S's. <laughs> Great job, CNN. Well, another thing with the, the pass, most common password being password is a lot of people just figure, you know what? I don't think anyone's going to care about me or my, or, or my account. And if they do, I don't care if they are able to access it. Uh, what are they going to do? When it comes to celebrities, there's almost always going to be something that somebody that's going to do something. Yeah, of course, with them. Yeah. One thing we'll learn when we become celebrities. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh boy. People will try and hack us like crazy. I'm so looking forward to that because I didn't get enough hack attempts on my server already. Really? Any server. If you just look at the access logs. Oh, okay. Okay, fine. I mean, it's not me specifically, but... But if you look at the logs of any server, you will find gazillions of hack attempts every day. Not to mention accesses to PHP MyAdmin that mm. don't exist. <laughs> Basically port scanning. In the case of my business, we have somebody who actually does a non-automated attack like once every couple weeks or so. Yeah, somebody wants to get into our business that bad. Ouch. Yeah. Speaking of PHP and your business, what are your thoughts on everyone hating PHP? Uh, I think for the most part, they're justified. They're justified in a pretty significant way. <laughs> so have there been any uh, scandalous articles about PHP and how it might be, say, a hammer that's strangely constructed? Why, yes. Yes, there is. I would say the uh, the Bible of PHP haters is an article called PHP is a Fractal of Bad Design. Link in the show notes. <laughs> yes, please visit the show notes. Here's the text, and I'm just going to quote the analogy. I can't even say what's wrong with PHP because, okay, imagine you have a, a toolbox, a set of tools. Looks okay. Standard stuff in there. You pull out a screwdriver, and you see it's one of those weird tri-headed things. Okay, well, that's not very useful to you, but you guess it comes in handy sometimes. You pull out the hammer, but to your dismay, it has the claw part on both sides. Still serviceable, though. I mean, you can hit nails with the middle of the head holding it sideways. 
You pull out the pliers, but they don't have those serrated surfaces. It's flat and smooth. That's less useful, but it still turns bolts well enough, so whatever. And on you go. Everything in the box is kind of weird and quirky. Maybe not enough to make it completely worthless. And there's no clear problem with the set as a whole. It still has all the tools. Now imagine you meet millions of carpenters using this toolbox who tell you, Well, hey, what's the problem with these tools? They're all I've ever used and they work fine. And the carpenters show you the houses they've built where every room is a pentagon and the roof is upside down. And you knock on the first door and it just collapses inwards and they all yell at you for breaking their door. That is what is wrong with PHP. (laughs) Ah, yes. And that is such a a great little story as well. (laughs) Yeah, the guy gets credit for, you know, he has a little bit of dark poetry going on there. Yeah. So with all these problems, why do you use PHP then? Well, the main reason for me is ubiquity. If there are tons and tons of servers out there that have LAMP setups and tons and tons of hosts out there that support LAMP setups, it makes sense to have a product that can work on as many of these environments as possible. For those of you that aren't aware, LAMP stands for Linux, Apache, MySQL, PHP. So there are tons of hosts out there that basically all they do is they take some kind of standard distribution like Ubuntu or CentOS or something like that install the package, and it has Linux, Apache, MySQL, PHP out of the box. And this kind of hosting you can get anywhere from 5 bucks a month to 100 bucks a month, depending on the hardware you want. So you, Ubiquity is the primary reason, because the clients that you have are pretty much guaranteed to have these tools. Yes, which goes to the second point, is integration. In the case of my company, there are a lot of other products out there that do, for instance, billing that need to integrate with our software. And the easiest way to do this is to have it in the same language where we can write hooks, PHP-based hooks that uh, will tie into their billing software or, or them tying into our software. It's a lot easier than having some kind of remote-based API, since there are a lot of developers that know PHP that can write the glue between these two pieces of software. It helps in that respect. And the other thing is, as a template language, PHP is pretty good. The fact is, I know there are other languages out there, like, you know, there's JSP and whatnot, and there's .NET, where you have the HTML component, and then you're doing an embed. But PHP is really, really good for that sort of thing, for a template language. Now, as a template language, I'm assuming that you don't mean template in the same way that you would mean a template in, say, C++. It's not dealing with generics because it's untyped in the first place, right? No, no, I don't mean that at all. When I mean a template language, I'm talking about a medium for having your display logic. Think of it like an HTML page, but then you add elements that are not HTML where you embed your data. So sort of, sort of like filling out a form. Say that you have a paper form... Yeah, where you need to fill <laughs> some stuff in. So the form with the, 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 that are not the blank boxes would be the HTML. And the spot where the user needs to write something in would be the equivalent of PHP. So in, in doing that, you have the fixed stuff, which is HTML and the, uh, the stuff that's surrounding it, uh, which is the PHP. Well, that's one way of putting it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's a good analogy, I think. It makes sense due to there being a lot of PHP developers out there 
if they can use it in a template sort of form, it helps. And since the software is in PHP, it's a lot harder to write something like, say, say we were to do this within Java instead, it would be a lot harder to have our template language then be in PHP. So here I am dealing with my really weird toolkit. Is there anything redeeming about it? I guess there's an article talking about how PHP, not so bad, not so bad. I wasn't able to get through most of it due to the incessant sarcasm, but uh, what were your thoughts on it? A lot of the things that he mentions, I mean, I understand that it's meant to be a good beginner's language. I mean, you don't have to worry about pointers and you don't have to worry about types. It's easy to use. It's good for rapid prototyping. And it's supposed to be safe by default, although <laughs> although I have a whole you know rant about that. And then for the most part, it's forgiving. If you take a language like Java and you don't convert the uh, data types, you'll end up getting an exception, which I can see a non-programmer or somebody who's trying to learn how to program looking at it and wondering why their program blew up. Mm-hmm. So it's good for people who are starting to learn, but... The problem with that is that it ends up being a compromise on the other end of things. Let me go into some of the problems that come up from it trying to address these other issues. Okay, so let's start with it being forgiving. When something bad happens, PHP will keep chugging along until it can no longer go on. And this is potentially bad because if something is not defined, for example you may have your program doing things that are unpredictable. Sounds like a recipe for data corruption. It is. It is a recipe for data corruption. And this is why things like exceptions are a good thing. It's explicitly saying that as a programmer, you may know something bad may happen and you're explicitly testing for it. Does PHP not have exceptions at all? PHP does have exceptions, but it doesn't cover everything. Oh, okay. The, there are fatal errors in PHP, which are 100% non-recoverable, which okay. in this case, there is no good exception handling for this. What, what kind of things would cause a fatal error? Like, for instance, in runtime, if there is a, a function that doesn't exist, which you're probably wondering from your perspective, why wouldn't this fail on compile? But the thing with PHP is that you, since you're able to do things like evaluation of PHP code from within the program, mm -hmm. you can't exactly test for that until it comes up to that line in the program. That's something that's fairly common with interpreted languages, where it's difficult to tell what's going to go wrong until you run it. Though with some of them, at least you can run a pre-checker on it. Right. Something like that, it's just a matter of saying, well, if I code better, if I code better, it's all my fault and I can do things around it. I think that the pressure should be on those making the tools rather than the person using the tools. Then there are the cases where you can't really do anything. Take, for instance, PHP's image manipulation library. It uses GD. If you feed it some forms of images, you will get a non-recoverable error which you can do absolutely nothing about. Ow. Yeah. You basically get a fatal error, and your program just dies. And I can think of other libraries where things like fatal errors happen within the library, and you can do absolutely no exception 
catching. So, so what do you do to avoid that? Do you just do a whole bunch of checks on the data before you send it to that library? You try and do as many checks as you possibly can. However, you still may run into situations where it's just non-recoverable and your program dies. Man. Yeah. And it gets even worse if you're doing something that doesn't necessarily have a rollback. Like, I mean, it's okay if you're doing a database operation and then your program dies and you're in the middle of a transaction because it automatically rolls back. Mm -hmm. But if you're doing something that's, say, within a critical section, that's really, really bad. And you have to be really, really careful about that sort of stuff. If your PHP gets a critical error, is there a way to detect this and then try again for the user? Uh, No, it's either one of two things happens. Either they get a printed error that says there's a fatal error, uh-huh. fatal error on this line in this program, and then it terminates. Or the other thing is that there's the silent part where a lot of production servers do not print out errors to the user and instead it gets logged. Okay, so what does the user see? The user sees the output of the program up until the point that the error is and then there's nothing and it just dies out. Huh. So yeah. is there is there sort of a way to to wrap the PHP inside something else that can then detect if the PHP had a problem? I don't think that's particularly efficient. No, but it does seem like it would provide the user with a better experience if you can make the extra latency small enough. Now, I don't do anything like that on our work end. However, uh, part of our software has a cron component that runs in PHP. And what I do to get around that is I have it fork. Anytime I do any kind of big operation, I fork the process Mm -hmm. and then have the child run the brunt of the work. And then if the child exits out gracefully, the parent finds out. And if it exits non-gracefully, the parent will know. I see. But, not, but nothing you can do on the, on the user-facing side then. <sighs> Correct. It seems like maybe it would be possible with a modification of Apache. I guess that still requires you having more access to your clients than you might actually have. True. And I mean, that's part of the issue when you're dealing with a piece of software that's going to be installed in hundreds of places in lots of different environments. Mm-hmm. So let me ask you, like, do you ever have to work in straight C and not be able to deal with exceptions? So I basically never have to work in straight C. Uh, the closest that I've gotten recently is when I was doing CUDA work. And at that point in time, not all of the C++ features were, had been implemented yet. With CUDA, the thing that was bothering me the most was having to debug thousands of threads uh, that were concurrently running. Oh, wow. And the other issue with it was that it didn't offer recursion. Uh, that sounds terrible. <laughs> the lack of exceptions generally haven't bothered me. The other thing is I do have a tendency to use error codes a lot. And some people say that they're not very elegant, but it, it's much easier to completely understand absolutely everything that could happen when you use them. Whereas uh, with exceptions, and there's a good article that was written by Raymond Chen of The Old New Thing talking about how in many cases it's it's difficult to wrap your head around absolutely everything that could occur during an exception and how you and the stuff that you would want to roll back and fix and what's locked in order to prevent data corruption. Well, within a uh, try-catch, wouldn't you just create a special type of exception object or whatnot? 
I think the idea is that it can be thrown there and then that exception can throw an exception and then you don't know exactly where you need to fall back to 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 fix some data or to roll back some data and uh, everything could become a mess. I wish I had a better description of the case that he was referring to, but it is pretty confusing and I can understand why one might be wary of exceptions. In most cases, they're pretty straightforward to use, but you can certainly put yourself into a bind with them. And they're still a whole lot better than dealing with fatal errors that you can do absolutely nothing about. Well, that's the thing. If it's a, if it's a fatal error and you use error codes, then it's not throwing an exception and it's not going to die. You can check the, you can check the error code and handle it appropriately. Yeah, I'm just saying that you don't really get that in PHP either. (laughs) (laughs) It's sort of a horrible hybrid. Yeah, exactly. Going back to the list of terrible things about PHP, you can have unpredictable things happen under the hood of the program. So in PHP, data types still exist. It's just for the most part, they're invisible. So for example, what happens if you compare an integer to a string? At what point is the conversion internally done? Like, for instance, in the article, they listed to an example where if you use the double equal operator instead of the triple equal operator, that there are sometimes things like hash fails. So, for instance, if you're doing a password form in PHP and you're using the double equal sign and you're doing an MD5 sum, there are some cases where the person can put in the wrong password and still get in. Secure by default. I know, right? What's happening is that um, PHP is looking at the password you put in, the MD5 hash, and if the MD5 hash has enough numbers in the beginning, it assumes that it is a number instead of a string. And when it converts to an integer, it ends up cutting off all of those characters that are not numeric, like the ABCDEF. Yeah, it's just completely painful. And if you're not aware of this, there are some cases where a person may have a password whose hash ends up being mostly numeric, and therefore it's a weak password. In situations like this, can you sort of cast things to detect it beforehand when you're dealing with sensitive things like that? You you can do cast, but the way around it is to use the triple equals operator. Now, for those of you who are not programmers, you do a comparison, usually in other languages, doing the double equals operator. You compare one item to another, like does this string that say ABC equal the string that says ABC? And that's equal. In PHP, if you use the triple equals operator, which is equals, 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 what you're doing is not only are you comparing the contents, you're comparing the data type as well. So if you compare a string to an integer, it will automatically return false because it's a different data type. Okay, so then you have to do that comparison, then a follow-up comparison after that if they're different? No, you just do the one comparison instead. Okay. But it's one of those things that since most people do not know about this, it's not exactly secure by default. Yeah. This sort of gets into one of the problems with uh, untyped languages in the first place, that a lot of the problems that you end up having are problems that you end up discovering during runtime. Usually you want to catch an error as early as possible because the longer you let it sit, the more damage it can cause. The, on the opposite end of the spectrum here is something like Haskell, 
where if you are able to compile your program, that means that you managed to somehow get all of your data types right. And there's a good chance that as a result, your algorithm is correct. So a lot of things that would have been discovered at runtime in other languages are discovered at compile time in Haskell. Now, one of the things about PHP that's terrible is that there is no sort of notice when you're doing a comparison of different types. Like usually in PHP, it will try and give you something called an E underscore notice. If you're doing something like, for instance, if you're trying to access an element within an array that doesn't exist, it will give you an E notice. But in the case of PHP, if you're doing an internal comparison between two different data types, you don't get any sort of notice like that. Did I just make your brain hurt? (laughs) Yeah, you just made my brain hurt. Okay. I'm reminded a lot of HTML and CSS. Like, with HTML and CSS, they're supposed to work well when you have everything validated. Where you run into a lot of the issues is the way browsers handle errors. Now, if you look at browser tests such as the ACID test, those pages have a lot of deliberate errors. And what they're doing is they're measuring the way the browser handles these HTML and CSS errors. Mm -hmm. Now, I want to get your opinion on something. For something like HTML, do you think markup languages like HTML are too forgiving? A long time ago, when they were creating HTML... They decided that they were going to be sort of loosey-goosey on the interpretation. They said, and I agree with it, that if they could take it all back and do it over again, they would have made it stricter. And that way, again, you would find the problems as early as possible. And in addition to that, you would have fewer ambiguities when a browser is trying to display something. Because you run into sort of undefined territory when you aren't to the spec. And if your browser then is okay with it not being right, uh, features that the browser makes or changes to the spec later uh, could have different results in different browsers. And once you've done that and you have web pages that are based off of this, if you change the browser in the future to no longer allow allow it, you break all these web pages and people yell about the browser. Another problem that came up recently regarding uh, ambiguity is uh, Gruber's Markdown. And his original spec had like, well, it wasn't really a spec. <laughs> it, was, <laughs> it was, here's some ideas on how I convert this text to other texts. And as a result, everyone's derivatives of Markdown were very different from each other. There was a effort made recently to try and make a more common version of it. They called it a standard markdown, and then everyone got angry about that, or Gruber and Marco at least got angry about that for trademark violation, and they've now renamed it to common markdown. But the idea was that they they did like like a Tower of Babel for markdown, where they compare markdown in like 15 different implementations to find the most common ones, and then sort of used the results of that to build their spec. I am reminded of the XKCD comic where he's looking at a bunch of different specs for the same thing and going, I know, I'm going to make a new spec that incorporates all of these other specs. And the whole only result of that is now you have that number of specs plus one specs to deal with. So did you know that HTML did something similar? Did you know there was a flavor of HTML that tried to make things stricter? I am not surprised by that. 
This is actually, it's called HTML strict. You're basically creating an XML document. It has to parse as XML in order to uh, actually render. The problem is, since people who are lay people, they end up not wanting to use it specifically because if you have some kind of weird error in it, the whole page doesn't render. Mm-hmm. And this is a problem with giving them the way that it's that's easy first. If if they had only been given the HTML strict to begin with, then they might not have this issue. I mean, my thoughts on the whole thing is that programming languages should be strict. In the case of markup, I think markup doesn't need to be strict. I think that it should be forgiving simply because markup is more along the lines of something that a non-programmer would be working on. So when Gruber was asked about this, he he mentioned that part of his whole ideal was that he wanted something that you could easily be able to read and that it was non-strict because regular people are looking at it. But I don't think that it necessarily needs to be strict in implementation. It needs to be strict in specification. Everyone that works with it should have the same interpretation, and that's where the problem there was. See, I think... JPEG was one of the examples of specifications done right, and that the decompression was very well specified, and the encoding part isn't as specified. Now, the rationale for that is that basically, if you have a valid JPEG file, it will decode and it will look right on basically anything that follows the specification. Mm-hmm. But the nice thing about the encoding part is that since the encoding part isn't as specified, you can potentially do optimization, which a lot of companies have been doing lately. Yeah, I think that makes sense. I think they tried to do that with HTML, but since there wasn't an actual reference for it. Yeah, another difference, though, with JPEG is that it's lossy, and you can't exactly do that with HTML. (laughs) This should be our claim to fame, lossy HTML. (laughs) it looks about right oh come on you didn't really want it to be that many pixels over well or just have it where depending on the compression level it'll just remove certain elements from the page goodbye iframe (laughs) that could be a fun project (laughs) going back to php part of the issue with php which the article had said was that It was a language for non-programmers, and then in parentheses, non-programs. Because of that, you can make, you can potentially make PHP pages that don't, that show no knowledge of data types or variable scopes or even functions. Speaking of scoping, I know that one of the major complaints about PHP is that it is, that it scopes things too broadly. And is this a major concern of yours in when you're developing? Yes. The best example for this is in older versions of PHP, they had something called register globals. In old versions of PHP, register globals was turned on. So that, for instance, if you pass any variable to your PHP page, like say you have a page called test.php, if you add to the URL question mark x equals 1, for example to your script, within the PHP program, there would be a variable called X that then all of a sudden exists. And equals one. So basically, the end user is getting to declare variables within your program. 
This sounds like it's going to be a problem security-wise. Yes, it did end up being a huge problem security-wise. So in, I think it was some variant of PHP 4, they ended up turning it off. Now, the problem you run into is there are a lot, there were a lot of installs out there that would keep register globals on due to there being old versions of PHP programs that relied on it. In my software, I actually have to detect this. There's still ones that are old enough for that? Yeah. I've run into installs that have register globals turned on. So what I have to do is within my general include code, I have a whole bunch of code that does sanitizing. Like if register globals is turned on, it deliberately tries to go and unset every single variable that is set by register globals. (laughs) And there are other settings within PHP, like part of The issue with the language is that there are so many different settings that just change the behavior of how your program works. And for your program to work effectively within lots of different environments, you have to account for all of them. Another example is called magic quotes. Have you heard of magic quotes? Are you talking about the quotes that look different than the straight up and down quotes for the beginning and ends of blocks of text? No, no. Within older versions of PHP, anything that you ended up passing to the page, like for instance, if you passed x equals one, that's fine. But what if you add pass something to the page that has quote marks in it? Like for instance, you know, quote unquote hi. Okay. What if magic quotes is turned on by default, it ends up adding backslashes to anything with quotes. The the idea of this is that if you're going to take any sort of user input and automatically put it into something like a database, if magic quotes is turned on, you're not introducing a potential SQL injection. This is going to end poorly. And of course, the problem with this is if magic quotes are turned on and you're not expecting magic quotes, any input you put into your database will have backslashes in them. On the other hand, if you're expecting magic quotes to be turned on and they're not turned on, you automatically have a whole bunch of SQL injection and security issues. Exciting. So you have to go and detect this as well. Is there an easy way to detect this or do you have to use a hack to detect this? Uh, they They have a setting where you can check the INI setting to see if magic quotes is turned on. And the idea, though, is that you can handle it one of two ways. You can basically, you have your include, and you can either, if magic quotes is turned on, you can strip all of the uh, slashes within your program, or you can have it where if magic quotes is turned off, you can add slashes to your program, which in my case, I choose to make it where magic quotes is off. Okay. Is this an, is this an Apache setting or? No, it's a PHP setting. So where would that go? Uh, it's within php.ini. Okay, so is this something that you have access to on all your client machines? Not necessarily. Okay, so you still have to deal with it both ways. I have to have a piece of include code that sanitizes my inputs based on whether or not magic quotes is turned on. The whole thing about it is that I understand what they're trying to do. They're trying to make it where any person who wants to begin using the language can potentially write something and not have to understand things like scoping. But in the process, it ends up making the code a lot 
harder to handle for larger projects. Now for my favorite part of PHP. Sarcasm tag. On 32-bit installs, the integers are 32-bit. Okay. So, say for instance, you're trying to find out the size of a file within the server or whatnot. Mm -hmm. Since they are signed 32 bits, you cannot have a file size that is greater than 2 gigabytes. (laughs) If you have a file size that is greater than 2 gigabytes, you end up getting overflow. And it will return a negative value. Lovely. I had to write a wrapper function where if it's on a 64-bit install, it returns the file size, you know, as predicted. Mm -hmm. If it's on Windows, it uses a com object in order to get the file size. Nice. Which returns it as a string. Mm -hmm. And then if it's 32 bits and not on Windows, it actually tries to do an exec towards a command like ls or stat in order to get the file size. Nice. If you're trying to do something front-facing, this is is completely terrible because you're basically creating a whole new process for every single time that you want to get a file size. How, how often do you need a file size? On the front-facing side of my software, not too often. However, in the administrator section, it's actually quite often. Uh. Anybody who's listening to this may argue that A lot of these things have been fixed in future versions of PHP, and PHP 5.6 may be great, or PHP 6.0 may be great and fix a lot of these things. But the problem with PHP is because of its ubiquity, it's a lot like Windows. PHP is like the Windows XP of the (laughs) server world. There are so many installs out there that are running PHP 5.2 still. And PHP 5.2 hasn't been, hasn't been receiving security updates for years. And then in the case of PHP 5.3, support for that just ended, I think, about a month ago or so. And there are still lots and lots of servers out there who are running PHP 5.3 that don't get security updates anymore. When somebody gets hosting on a third-party hosting company, what these hosts do is they'll install a piece of software like CentOS or Ubuntu or whatever that gets support and updates for two years. And then after the two years, the host does nothing to update their OS install. So the version of PHP they have there is basically sitting there with no updates whatsoever. Sounds insecure. Yeah. A lot of people know that uh, Facebook was built on top of PHP and then they decided to go and make their own PHP, uh, I guess, compiler. Uh, and then they decided to go and make their own PHP extensions. I was wondering what you thought about those. I think that they're trying to avoid doing something like a rewrite the way that Twitter had to. Twitter was originally on Ruby on Rails until it couldn't <laughs> handle the server load and then rewrote it within Java. Mm-hmm. I think they're trying to make it where... Since there is a wide pool of PHP developers, they're looking to do something where a lot of developers can do a lot of front-end work. Specifically, like, what, what do you, have you tried it yourself? I have not tried it. I think what they're trying to do is they're not trying to really fix the language. They're just trying to deal with performance issues. I, I had heard that it is considerably faster. So I was wondering if like the, the ones that you host yourself, the instances that you host yourself, if you had considered using it there. I haven't gone into that yet. However, I think 
part of the reason that we may not be able to use that is I don't think they allow for any sort of eval statement. So I don't think you're able to actually interpret PHP code on the fly the same way you can within straight PHP, which unfortunately it's one of the requirements for our existing template language that we're using. Why did you make the decision to have dynamically evaluated PHP as part of your project? It's part of the template language that we're currently using. And part of the reason we chose that was specifically because there were other products within the same niche market that are using the same template language. If you want to use this template language, this is how you're going to have to do it. Yeah, exactly. We're going to be switching our template language over pretty soon for new installs. So after that, we may end up evaluating if our software will work with Facebook's solution. What about the M part and the A part? of LAMP, the MySQL and Apache. What are your thoughts there? Okay, so MySQL has improved a whole lot over the years since I started using it. I started using MySQL when it was back at 3.23. And this is back in the day where you couldn't do anything like subqueries within MySQL. Mm. So in MySQL 4, they added subqueries. In MySQL 5, they added views. And over the time, the default storage engine ended up changing from my ISAM to inodb. Now, that sort of thing for anybody who's not familiar with MySQL at all will sound like complete gibberish. <laughs> Let so me what explain. are the advantages of one or the other then? Yes. inodb is now ACID compliant, which is short for being atomic, consistent, isolation, and durability. Within my ISAM, or my ISAM, you couldn't do things like transactions at all. So imagine using an old version of MySQL for something like running a bank. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry. Um. Well, within old versions of MySQL, anytime you wanted to do something like, for instance do a deduct one person's bank account and then increment another person's bank account, say transfer money from one account to another, you would have to lock the whole table. So essentially it could only process one record at a time. With inodb, you actually have things like row level locking where you don't necessarily have to do a lock on the whole table in order to do things like a transaction. Yeah, that's definitely better. Yeah. So there's stuff like that. The fact that you have transactions, you have things like rollbacks. It's just a whole lot better. And MySQL is actually at the point where you can use it for operations that are actual mission critical. I could actually see it being used at something like, for instance, a bank or a credit union or whatnot. Though I don't think they ever would. I don't think they ever would, but I could see it actually being decently credible due to the fact that it has actual ACID compliance nowadays. It's Mm -hmm. much closer to Postgres. You know, Postgres used to be the actual real man's quote-unquote working free database, Mm -hmm. where MySQL has done a lot of catch-up over the years. When do you think you might consider switching off of the horrible mess of a dysfunctional toolbox and to something else. Um, I would consider doing that if we had control of everything. Like if we handled the hosting, if we handled the environment, 
if the customer had zero access to the server and just did, did things like upload files, you know, mm-hmm. upload things like movie files and image files and whatnot, when I don't have to worry about the environment that all of our clients have, and we're basically controlling everything, then I would consider a rewrite in a better language. Let's get on to something that doesn't suck. Uh, did you have a chance? <laughs> you sound like when you say that, I feel like you're going to do a sponsor read. Yeah. All right. Something that's happened recently that doesn't suck. There's been an announcement from Oculus and Samsung. They, they, they introduced a thing called the Samsung Gear VR Innovator, which is powered by Oculus. It's a headset that transforms your Galaxy Note 4, which I think is the same one that's in the DK2, uh, into a VR headset by sticking your phone in it. The idea is really similar to the Google Cardboard, but has the advantage of it being a low-persistence display, and they actually have something to strap it to your head. Like the DK2, it's intended for developers. So that's kind of interesting, not so much for the headset, but the fact that there is a phone with a low-persistence display now. Yeah, I mean, I think most of it is driver issue normally. I think that the other older OLED uh, devices also could have possibly done that, but they weren't configured to do so. So I can't help but think if you had something like this new Note phone and you put it within Google Cardboard, how much worse would it be in the Google Cardboard compared to the glasses that they're making? It turns out with a DK2, you can turn pers- low persistence off and on. And I did actually play with that a bit, and it makes a huge difference. The When the low persistence is turned on, the whole image is a little bit dimmer, uh, which would make sense because the light's not on as much. Yeah. But when you turn your head, everything stays clear. Uh, whereas if you have it off, then everything becomes a blur. In addition to their general announcement, there was also an interview with uh, John Carmack about it, and he talks about Oculus's mobile SDK. There were some interesting bits from the interview. Most of the developers are using Unity. There's very little that they have to do in order to get it to work on the phone. This is something that I noticed as well when I've been downloading things for the DK2 and the DK1. That is that Pretty much everyone just uses Unity. And so the problems that are that they have are everywhere, and the advantages that they have are everywhere. So are you thinking of getting a pair of these? I don't think that I will. It requires a Galaxy Note 4, so unless I had a reason to get one of those, I wouldn't get the, the whole de- device. It's also basically another developer kit. Something interesting that was also part of the interview is that he mentioned that you literally cannot use all of the an Android device's power because you'll bump into thermal limitations. So if you have everything full bore all the time, you'll basically overheat the device in a couple of minutes. So could you do something deliberate? Supposedly, at least with the Samsung devices, you have to pick a valid mode. And one of those modes is you might want high levels of GPU and low levels of CPU or vice versa. And you could pick things like that. There's no valid mode for having both of them be like maximum. Okay. There isn't a way of, say, doing a malicious app that will burn your phone or something like that. Or does it just go into power saving mode? I think even when you're specifying one of those high-low things that it's still possible to become thermally limited. But I don't think that there's anything that you can do to like actually destroy the phone, at least not that I'm aware of. 
I think it will automatically go into a, a lower power state and lower usage state, and you'll just get crummier performance. Could always get a heatsink. The other interesting thing with VR uh, that I noticed recently is uh, relating to input. And I don't know if you saw... Did you see the video that I sent you with the H- Half-Life 2 VR training? I did. It looked really interesting. So in this video, there's a person that made a mod of Half-Life 2. They have two hands that show up all the time. And in these two hands, you can do things like pick up ammunition or hold a gun. And they showed a demo of like the revolver where they were holding this revolver. And in order to reload, they, they, they flipped with their hand to the left and then they put more ammo in and then they moved their hand back to the right to flip the ammo back in. And it was, it was really compelling looking. I want a version of Doom where it's berserker mode only, where you're wearing the gloves and you just go around <laughs> punching everything. A boxing match Doom. Yeah. <laughs> but only with the one hand, only the right hand. Only one hand works. Well, you yeah. could you could mod it so that both hands work. And the the demo was done with uh, Razer Hydra. What Razer did is I guess they licensed the technology from Sixth Sense. I'm not sure how to pronounce it exactly. And this video made me more aware of what Sixth Sense is doing and what they're going to release, I believe in October is a full motion tracking device where in addition to having a device in each hand, which is sort of like the Wii sensor, uh, except that it can do absolute positioning and the absolute positioning does not drift with anything because it uses a electromagnetic base station that it ha- that it measures its actual distances from. Unlike the Kinect, it isn't bothered by line of sight, so you can have things occluding it, which if you have a whole bunch of these sensors, these positional and orientation sensors all over your body, you can go into pretty much any pose that you want to, and it will be perfectly tracked. There's some interesting demos that they show on the site, one with lightsabers, which is what everyone wanted to do with the Wii controllers, but nobody was ever ever able to actually do well because of accuracy issues with the positioning and with latency issues on the Kinect and also some accuracy issues. There's also another demo where they're going around and picking stuff up in various places in the room and tossing it and it behaves naturally as exactly how it would behave if you were to toss something in real life, which with the Wii was not the case. And then there's the general aiming guns. And you could do things with the VR, like you could bring the gun up to your face and look through its sights and use that to aim. And it would be accurate there. So the, the position orientation of your hand and your head, where you were able to line it up nicely. Oh, yeah. I thought that part was really cool. I think there's a lot of neat things that can be done there, and I'm really tempted to pre-order one and try it out. It's funny you bring up the lightsaber thing. It always comes up. The one thing that I find that's not compelling when it comes to lightsaber duels is the fact that there's no resistance. Did you hear about Neil Stevenson's sword fighting project? I saw something about that quite a while back, but refresh me, please. His project was he wanted to create a sword fighting simulator where you could use motion sensors or whatever and it would do proper physics on the swords and everything like that and it turns out that if you're following proper sword fighting technique that the fact that there is no resistance when you hit is not as big of a deal because you generally would not want to follow all the way through 
uh, in a real fighting scenario. You might want to push their sword down, but the, the fact that there is no collision is not as big of a deal as it might seem. Well, how would you get around trying to push their sword down? Or you just don't? That I don't exactly know. I, I don't know enough about it. Uh, he's actually another one of the people that showed up in the Sixth Sense videos, Neil Stevenson. And it, they showed some demos of like the stuff that they had created after the Kickstarter with that. Yeah, it just reminds me a lot of the old days of being able to clip through walls and games that didn't have proper collision detection. Mm-hmm. And I could see sword sword fighting, lightsaber fighting being very similar in that regard. I think that for the like the Jedi deflection stuff, it's much probably much more compelling, like deflecting a laser or something, than doing an actual duel. Oh, okay. Not so much for two player, but I could see the game working around it. Where where the enemy AI if you do a swing that there isn't going to be the whole resistance sort of pushing on those characters. And I think games where like it's a sword versus people with guns kind of thing, it could work out decently as well. Because in that case you just go up to them and slice them in half anyway. Right. Okay, so do we want to close off or do we want to talk about Anand? Uh might as well talk about Anand. Is it Anand or Anand? I don't know. Any Anything I've heard is uh, Anand. Let's go with Anand then. Yeah, Anand is retiring from Anand Tech and going to Apple, which I find that really interesting. I wonder what kind of role he would have there. Yeah, I was wondering the same thing. It, it's it's possible that he might go into, like say, PR because their head PR person had left, uh, trying to keep track of media there. Another possibility with his vast technical background is that he would be sort of a pseudo reviewer that's in-house so they have a bunch of secret projects that they're working on and they really want to know how the press would react to this Mm. and so they give it to him to write sort of a review of their product and then they go back and take that feedback and adjust it based off of that uh see that's kind of a shame because it would be great to see some of those internal reviews it would be awesome yeah it's never gonna happen Never going to happen. black hole that is Apple. Oh, I could see him being used specifically for PR. I think that's credible in part. Not so much PR towards, you know, regular kind of companies, but more of the whole tech circle. Mm-hmm. I think he'd, he'd be a really good liaison for that sort of thing, especially considering how many people respect him within the industry. When I want to get a review of hardware, that is that is basically where I go. I remember reading a parody that somebody did a parody of the movie Blade. The bad guy's sitting in front of his computer and he says, he's like, damn, I just wanted a graphics card review, not a dissertation. And then it cuts <laughs> in the screen. The screen is a non-tech. Nice. I'll have to find that. <laughs> I like the dissertations. Yeah, he is the Syracuse of hardware reviews. So let's close off the show here. Thank you for listening to Aliens Land here. You can reach us on Twitter at Aliens Land here. You can also go to alh.fm and look at our show notes. And I want to take a little bit of extra time to talk about our show notes this time. I, I do think that they are worth going to since generally uh, I'll, I'll put a whole bunch of links to the things that we talked about. For example, in the previous episode, I put a link to the AppleSoft basic reference manual that I had referred to during the episode. Uh, there's 
also a bunch of things that just go to Wikipedia. But if you're un if you're uncertain about anything that we talked about, going to alh.fm is a good place to go. Or if you missed if we if we talked about a product or something and you missed what we had, uh, what we had said, it's a good place to go to find out more about it. And by the way, feedback is always welcome. And considering how much feedback we're getting so far, your comment will probably be read in some regard. All right. So have a great day. See you next time. I actually received my replacement fracture. How's that? Uh, it's actually, it's really nice. It's a whole lot better than the one that I had before. Good. So everything was fixed then? Yeah, everything was fixed. Cool. You're going to consider getting more from them later? Oh, absolutely. I should, what I should do for the show notes is I should take a picture of what I actually took. What are you talking about? I always talk like this.